Welcome to the History of the Americans podcast, episode 67. I am your host, Jack Henneman, and we are recording this very early in the morning on April 7, 2022, in Austin, Texas. If you are new to the podcast, we are telling the history of the lands now encompassed by the United States from the beginning without presentism. Also, if you are new to the podcast, you might go listen to the revised introduction for new and long-standing listeners, which is pinned to the top of the website's homepage. The website is thehistoryoftheamericans.com. I still can't believe I got that URL. As is often the case, music for the writing of this episode was provided by WWOZ in New Orleans, which some say is America's greatest radio station. This episode is about the first Anglo-Powhatan War, a very ugly period that stretched from just after John Smith's departure in the fall of 1609 to the marriage of John Rolfe and Pocahontas in the spring of 1614. Before we get to all that harshness, though, I'm going to talk a little bit about beer. Since doing this, I've gotten in the habit of looking at the date pages on Wikipedia, which list all the historical stuff, birthdays, and deaths that happened on, for example, April 7th of any year. Doing exactly that, I learned that today is National Beer Day, which seems like a handy bit of information to know. This is not merely, or at least only, some made-up beer industry marketing thing. National Beer Day recognizes an actual historical event, the effective date of the Cullen-Harrison Act in 1933. The Cullen-Harrison Act was enacted in the waning months of Prohibition, but before the ratification of the 21st Amendment to the Constitution, which repealed the 18th Amendment the amendment that had banned the sale of intoxicating liquors in the United States. The 18th Amendment provided that the Congress and the several states shall have the concurrent power to enforce this article by appropriate legislation. Most of you learned listeners probably know that the federal version of the enforcing legislation was the infamous Volstead Act of 1919 which set the permitted percentage of alcohol by volume at 0.5%, a ridiculously low level that tested the edge of the definition of intoxicating and took even many supporters of prohibition by surprise. By early 1933, the Great Depression was wearing people down and popular support for prohibition had collapsed. Repeal was in sight. And on March 13th, only nine days after his inauguration, President Franklin Roosevelt sent a message to Congress calling for the repeal of the Volstead Act. Congress responded nine days later. That was back when Congress knew how to act quickly when the stakes were high. Passing the Colin Harrison Act, which effectively amended the Volstead Act by raising the maximum alcohol percentage for beer to 3.2%, effective April 7th, 1933, 89 years ago today. The argument was essentially that nobody could get drunk on 3.2 beer. On signing the bill, FDR himself famously remarked, I think this would be a good time for a beer. Um, I'm glad for everybody who's joining this video. It's great to hear from you. Hold on a sec. I'm going to get me um, a beer. 
Maybe someday I'll do a sidebar about Harvard politicians and beer. America's breweries had 16 days to rise to the occasion, and so they did in those states where stricter laws didn't still prevail. People began lining up at breweries the night before, and that morning they tested the proposition that you can't get drunk on what was, more or less, light beer. A couple of episodes back on the timeline, we talked about Jamestown during the starving time, the gruesome winter of 1609 and 10. That story depends in part from the first Anglo-Powhatan War, which began almost immediately after the Powhatans, Powhatans learned that John Smith was out of the picture. This episode looks at that war as military history. The body count will be high, and there will be no shortage of cruelty on both sides. The main source for this episode is an article written by Professor J. Frederick Faust more than 30 years ago, An Abundance of Blood Shed on Both Sides, from the January 1990 issue of the Virginia Magazine of History and Biography. Today, Professor Faust, I'm hoping I'm pronouncing that correctly, is Professor of History at the University of Missouri-St. Louis. Professor Faust's article is detailed and also quite a bit different in tone on those events from James Horn's account in his book on Opakankanaw, which, by the way, I highly recommend. Links in the show notes, as usual. The First Powhatan War was fantastically bloody as a percentage of the populations involved. Professor Faust includes a detailed table of the 370 English combat deaths during the three years of active fighting. Since the European population of Jamestown and its satellite settlements at the beginning of the war was about 380, direct deaths from fighting chewed up the equivalent of all the starting English population. Wars often begin because the aggressor overestimates its own military capacity and prospects for an easy victory. As of early April 2022, that seems to be what has happened in the Russo-Ukraine War, and history overflows with such examples. The American southern states may have done in 1861 when they decided to go to war with the United States. One of the causes of World War I was that the combatants believed that the machine gun and railroads would make the offense dominant in the coming war. It turned out that the real power of the machine gun was on defense, fired from a trench. A lot of people would die because of that misimpression. It was not preordained that the English and the Powhatans would go to war in the fall of 1609. They did because, among other reasons, they both were too confident of their prospects. After John Smith had left, there was nobody in the English leadership who respected the war-making capabilities of the Powhatans and the quality of their leadership in the sense of considering them realistically. Clowns like Ratcliffe didn't think of Powhatan and Upakankanaw as savvy leaders. Ratcliffe proves his condescension by thinking that Powhatan could be flattered or won over with munificence. And, of course, they believed that English soldiers, battle-hardened by long wars in Ireland and in the Netherlands, and English steel and firearms were indomitable. For their part, Powhatan and Opakankanaw had been winning their wars for more than 30 years before the English had arrived in 1607. They had built the most formidable military power in the entire eastern seaboard of North America. 
subduing one tribe after another, sometimes with extraordinary brutality. Recall that shortly before that fateful day when the English arrived, the Powhatans had wiped out the Chesapeake's, killing even women and children. They may also have hunted down and murdered survivors of the Roanoke colony who had taken refuge with tribes on their southern border in North Carolina. The Paramount chief had spent the time since trading for and stealing English weapons and tools, closing the technology gap. Patton's warriors, who outnumbered the English fighting men by as much as 30 to 1 in the fall of 1609, had accumulated more than 300 metal hatchets, 50 swords, and even a few muskets, which the German defectors, remember those guys, had taught them to fire and maintain. The fact that the English seemed to have no capacity to feed themselves added to the Indians' impression that they were fundamentally incompetent, firearms and giant ships notwithstanding. During the first two and a half years, the English and the Powhatans had learned a lot about each other, including in combat. The Paramount Chief Powhatan, or his war chief and kinsman Opakankanaw, had almost certainly ordered the first big attack on Jamestown in 1607 while maintaining plausible deniability. The Indian leaders took the measure of the English in that first big fight, which Professor Faust believes was a planned reconnaissance in force. At the end of that year, Opakankanaw's men had captured John Smith, took him on a tour of the region, and ultimately delivered him up to the paramount chief. The two men took the measure of each other, culminating in the hotly debated ceremony in which Pocahontas either saved or pretended to save, Smith from having his brains bashed in. Either way, the two men made an uneasy peace, swapped Thomas Savage and Namantak, and settled into an established pattern of trade blended with intimidation and bluff and bluster. Powhatan wanted English weapons, and Smith needed Indian maize. Powhatan's goal was to get as many English weapons and tools as he could, and Smith's goal was to get as much corn as he could without giving the enemy so many weapons that it would gain the confidence to attack. Things might have gone on that way for a long time, but it was an unstable equilibrium. The Virginia Company in London had investors and political considerations to balance, since it had a constant need to raise new money. Religious people, of which there were many in England during the early 17th century, were genuinely concerned with the conversion of the Indians to Christianity. Saving souls was very important business then. This created pressure to recruit Indian children for fundamentally re-education, and that required the English to pursue more contact with the Indians than they wanted. Imperialists put pressure on the company to cement England's claim to the region of the Chesapeake, That led to the silly coronation of Powhatan in late 1608. That was not only degrading for Powhatan, but it confused the way that the English themselves thought about the Indians. Finally, investors were interested in a profit, which forced the English to push out from Jamestown deep into Powhatan territory, searching for metals or minerals that could be mined. Also, since the Virginia Company wanted the colony to produce commodities that could be sold for profit, they couldn't have their people spending all their time growing the food they needed to survive. Nor could the settlers live entirely off preserved food shipped in leaky barrels across the Atlantic. 
That meant that it was a de facto company policy that the colonists get food from the Indians. Sometimes the Indians had surpluses and would trade, but the region was enduring an extended drought. That meant that the Indians of the region would not always willingly trade the food the English needed. So the English resorted to ever more coercive methods to change their minds. All of this resulted in no end of interventions that destabilized the equilibrium that prevailed after the capture and release of John Smith in early 1608, until he was relieved of command in the summer of 1609. Long-standing and attentive listeners will remember one such episode out of many. At one point, Captain Newport sailed in, as he was wont to do, decided to take over negotiations with Powhatan from Smith, and ended up trading 20 swords for 20 turkeys, believing, as Ratcliffe had done and would do again, that haughty munificence would ensure Powhatan's friendship, or at least quiescence. Powhatan, savvy as he was, banked the gain and asked for more. In early 1609, Powhatan warned Smith that he should not look to the Indians for food. That was their last encounter, and Powhatan seemed to vanish. In response, the English increased their contacts with tribes at the edge of the Powhatan Confederacy, building alliances of convenience that increased the Confederacy's insecurity. In the spring of 1609, the Virginia Company in London sent the huge third supply mission with, among other things, the orders that Smith be demoted. This was the fleet that would be dispersed by a hurricane. Its flagship, the Sea Venture, wrecked on Bermuda. It also brought back the gentleman who hated Smith and one of the ships carried plague, a story we covered in our episode on the starving time. Captain Samuel Argyll arrived ahead of the third supply fleet in July and told Smith that he would be deposed. When the surviving ships of the third supply arrived a few weeks later, Smith refused to relinquish command of the gentleman on the grounds that the only copy of the orders demoting him were on the sea venture, which was presumed lost. Since much of the food brought by the third supply had been damaged in the hurricane or lost on the sea venture, Smith knew that with so many more mouths to feed, victuals would run short and that the coming winter would be very difficult. While the gentleman conspired to take him out one way or the other, Smith made the tough decision, as Ralph Lane had done at Roanoke in 1585, to disperse the colonists so they would have a bigger footprint for foraging. He sent a hundred colonists to the territory of the Nansimods on the southern bank of the James just west of today's Norfolk, and another 120 upriver to the village of Powhatan, which he bought, scare quotes there, in a coercive negotiation. Since I cannot do better, here's how Professor Faust describes the consequences. Quote, Although this decision relieved pressure on the scant provisions of the fort and forestalled another lethal summer by removing numbers of colonists from the salty, disease-ridden water around the English capital, it proved disastrous for Indian relations. Smith's presumption in sending rude and raucous colonists to eat up the provisions of alienated local tribes was the final provocation that precipitated England's first Indian war. When Captains George, Percy, and John Martin encamped 100 hungry colonists near the villages of the powerful and occasionally aggressive Nansamans, 
The Englishman's fear and inexperience created a volatile situation. After messengers they had dispatched to the Nansamad chiefs failed to return, Percy and Martin unleashed a vengeful rampage on the Indians, convinced of unsubstantiated native, quote, treachery. Me interjecting here, according to James Horn, in his book, A Brave and Cunning Prince, about Upakankanaw, the two messengers had been put to death rather gruesomely, their brains cut and scraped out of their heads with muscle shells. We report, you decide. Back to Professor Faust. In George Percy's account, the English burned their houses, ransacked their temples, took down the corpses of their dead kings from their tombs, and carried away their pearls, copper, and bracelets, wherewith they do decor their king's funerals. Following the sacrilege and the kidnapping of a chief's son, Percy and Martin fled to Jamestown, abandoning their men to the horrors of a long and lethal siege by the enraged Nansamons. Over the next few weeks, the Indians methodically slew nearly half of this encircled garrison, probably 40 to 50 men. The 30 musketeers whom Smith belatedly sent to relieve the beleaguered company told terrifying tales of finding English corpses punctured by a dozen arrows and their mouths stuffed with cornbread and contempt and scorn of hungry aliens. Similar hostilities erupted simultaneously far upriver. Francis West had settled his company of 120 in a vulnerable palisade, quote, environed with many intolerable inconveniences, including a host of angry warriors in the vicinity of the falls of the James. That's about Richmond. Smith arrived about mid-August and forced Chief Parahunt to, quote, sell him the nearby village of Powhatan, renamed Nonsuch, a well-fortified site of flourishing maize fields and comfortable lodges. Having appropriated this culturally significant village of Paramount Chief Powhatan's birth, Smith demanded that the local Powhatans pay a yearly tribute to King James to ensure English protection from the Monacans, a tribe to the West opposed to the Powhatans. When West's disorderly company of protectors moved into Nonsuch, however, they proved to be worse enemies than the Monacans themselves by beating the villagers, taking hostages, stealing provisions, and destroying homes. When Parahunt could stand no more of this unprovoked aggression, his warriors struck back and killed at least 50 of West's men in harassing attacks between mid-August and late October, 1609. Back to me. In September, Smith would be severely burned when something or someone ignited the powder bag he wore as he dozed in a shallop. That would end his career in Virginia, and in early October, with his departure, went the last chance to prevent a prolonged and brutal war. In Faust's assessment, Smith had both catalyzed the war and was the only Englishman with even the remotest chance of ending it. In Faust's words, Smith's departure from the Chesapeake in early October 1609 guaranteed a long and gruesome war, for no Virginia colonists would approach his talents, however flawed, for many years. As the rash acts of Percy, West, and Martin revealed, few Englishmen appreciated the crucial difference between calculated intimidation 
and limitless atrocities, like the imperious, arrogant young cavalry officers so often stereotyped in B-movies. Percy, son of the 8th Earl of Northumberland, West, son of the 2nd Baron de la War, and Martin, son of the Lord Mayor of London, were spoiled aristocrats whose incompetence and inexperience, pride and paranoia, cruelty and cowardice, gave the Powhatans a chilling preview of domination by England's best. Back to me. At Smith's departure, therefore, the English were in four locations. Jamestown itself, Nansamon at the mouth of the Chesapeake, which would soon be abandoned, Point Comfort on the opposite bank, and Nunsuch at the fall line upriver at today's Richmond. By Professor Faust's count, more than a hundred English had died. Powhatan now would launch his siege of Jamestown, precipitating the starving time, which we covered in detail a couple of episodes back. Together with plague and starvation and cannibalism and executions, the Indian siege would reduce Percy's garrison there by 110 souls. Ratcliffe would lead an expedition to trade for corn in November and would die gruesomely along with 20 or more of his men. In the summer of 1610, the new pinnaces Deliverance and Patience would arrive from Bermuda with the comparatively blessed and well-fed survivors of the Sea Venture wreck, close to 140 men and women, including John Rolfe, who will feature prominently in the next episode and eventually end the war in the least expected way. The commander, Governor Thomas Gates, would size up the situation and decide to abandon Jamestown, which he would do on June 7th. Powhatan had seemingly won. Fate would intervene, however, and the departing ships would encounter Lord de la War's reinforcing fleet as it sailed down the James. The English reoccupied Jamestown on June 10, 1610. There were now 375 Englishmen in Virginia, 290 of whom had just arrived. De La War's men were different from previous reinforcements. At least some of them were professional soldiers, hardened by years of fighting brutal wars in Ireland and the Netherlands, and armed to the teeth. The aptly named De La War would lead a brutal counteroffensive over the next nine months and ultimately snatch victory from the jaws of defeat. De La War and Gates would impose martial law and strict discipline, and by July would go on the offensive. Now let's go back to Professor Faust's account of the summer of 1610. Quote, On Monday, July 9, 1610, Gates initiated the English counteroffensive when his forces suddenly and without provocation descended upon the Kekaton village near Fort Algernon at Point Comfort. His musketeers killed some 20 men, women, and children easily, inflicting extraordinarily large and mortal wounds on a high percentage of the population because the unsuspecting Kekatons had been lured into the open by the tunes and dancing of Gates' drummer, a traditional Powhatan gesture of hospitality. Sorry about that. My B. Back to Faust. After slaying or scattering the only villagers who had fed Englishmen all winter, 
Gates' men looted the Indian lodges. Almost immediately, they began building Fort Charles, the origins of the city of Hampton, to commemorate this first conquest of a Powhatan tribe and to guard the valuable, abundant Kecaton maize fields. One month later, the English expanded their campaign against Jamestown's native neighbors with an attack on the nearby Pespaheggs. In the pre-dawn hours of Friday, August 10th, some 70 colonists under the joint command of Captains Percy, John Davis, and William West launched a surprise attack on Chief Wawinchapunk's village just a few miles from the James Fort. They killed about 16 of their, quote, deadliest enemies as they emerged from their lodges, thus avenging a recent Pespaheg attack on the Jamestown blockhouse in which four colonists had died. After scattering the survivors, the raiders burned Indian longhouses, harvested their ripened maize, and murdered several captives. Percy reported that his vengeful troops demanded that Wawinchapunk's two children be killed and that, after throwing them overboard and shooting out their brains in the water on the short sail to Jamestown, they were still not satisfied. Having seen so much bloodshed that day, the distraught Percy had the slain children's mother stabbed to death so that Delaware couldn't burn her alive. Back to me, the offensive continued. Within the next few days, the English attacked the nearby Chickahominies and Waracoyaks, capturing or burning down fields of maize, burning their villages, and otherwise indiscriminately terrorizing. By the end of the summer, the Indians were back on their heels, and the English had acquired enough food to prevent another starving time. It would be the turn of the surviving Indians to go hungry. In November, Lord de la War turned his attention to the Virginia Company's economic interests. He assembled a force of up to 200 men. That estimate comes from Faust, and I have no reason to doubt it, other than it represented such a huge percentage of the English population that it feels a bit too big to me. And headed up the river in search of minerals and iron mines. This did not turn out as planned. At some point upriver, a group of naked Appomattox women lured the boat with 14 German miners and metallurgists ashore. It's not clear why the boat was separated from the soldiers or why none of the Germans wondered why it might be that Indian women were gallivanting in such a state of nature in November. Not surprisingly, there were warriors waiting in ambush and they killed all of them. Only one man survived the initial attack, the drummer who had led the Kecatons to their doom a few months before. And the warriors pursued him with... In Professor Faust's words, particular intensity. The English quickly retaliated, attacking the Appomattox village, slew some warriors, and caused their queen to miscarry from musket wounds. Delawar persisted, even though he no longer had men who could distinguish a mine from a hole in the ground. At some point, described as the head of the river, it wasn't actually because the head of the James is at a confluence of two other rivers between Lexington and White Sulphur Springs, far to the west. De La War took his men ashore and built a fort. De La War and his men spent the winter there. That must have been a barrel of laughs. 
enduring numerous wounds and even fatalities from Indian sharpshooters. By the end of the winter, De La War, his name now looking a bit less apt, withdrew downriver with at least 32 fewer men than he had taken upriver. No mines had been found, and the Virginia Company would have to wait three more years for the first sign of a profitable business in the New World. De La War was in sad shape after a winter in a rough-hewn fort getting shot at, and he sailed for England on March 28, 1611, never to return to Virginia. The Indians were keenly aware that leadership mattered and that disruption in leadership could create military opportunities, just as they had done after they learned that Smith had gone on learning of De La War's departure, they attacked Jamestown itself. Between two and five hundred bowmen approached the blockhouse that guarded the neck between the Jamestown Peninsula and the shore. The officer in command was the, quote, most hated Lieutenant Puttock. Puttock, not Buttock, although one would be forgiven for making the mistake. He had personally killed a Pespaheg elder, and the implication is that his own men did not appreciate him much either. Anyway, the Indians taunted Puttock until he lost his cool. That's not actually the right word, but this is a family podcast. And ordered his entire garrison of 20 men to attack. As they emerged from the blockhouse, they were cut down in a hail of arrows. Not one survived or so much as got off a shot. On hearing the Indians shout in triumph, Percy rallied his men in the ford and dispatched 50 musketeers to confront the Indians, who melted away. This would be the last victory of the Powhatan Confederacy in the First Anglo-Powhatan War. On May 12, 1611, Sir Thomas Dale arrived in Virginia with three ships, a great store of armor, munitions, food, and 300 more veteran soldiers who had been tempered in brutal fighting in Ireland and the Netherlands. Dale and his men were very experienced, hardened soldiers, and were the first English fighters in North America to bring comprehensive steel armor. Dale put teeth into the martial law installed by Gates and De La War. Here's how Professor Faust describes it, quote, Over the next three years, Dale and other officers used this rigid code to justify the, quote, slaughter of His Majesty's free subjects by starving, hanging, burning, breaking upon the wheel, and shooting to death. Although Dale's punishments were sadistic in the extreme, quote, the fear of a cruel, painful, and unusual death represented desperate but perhaps necessary responses to the colonists' perennial flirtations with insubordination, incompetence, indolence, and intrigue. Dale's regime was so brutal that settlers began to defect to the Indians. Dale hired Indians to hunt them down and kill them. You might reasonably ask who these Indians were to make common cause with such a man as Dale against the interests of their own people. Well, there are always such people in any war. We all do what we need to do to survive when our lives hang in the balance, and we can imagine the end of our world. Dale was the first real strategic thinker since John Smith. He conceived a plan to trap the Powhatans in the jaws of a vice, closing both the eastern and western borders of their territory along the James River. 
His hope was to achieve such a positional advantage that he could force a quick settlement of the war. In June 1611, Dale closed the eastern door, attacking the Nansamods at the mouth of the James with 200 armored men. The Nansamods fought bravely, but their arrows plinked off the armor. Still, many English took wounds, and Dale himself narrowly escaped when an arrow glanced off the brim of his helmet. Had it been just a bit lower, Percy reported, it might have shot him in the brains and endangered his life. Something tells me Percy wouldn't have been too sad about that. Nevertheless, the English won a quick victory, functionally destroying the Nansamans as a society. In the first week of August, Gates came back to Virginia with six more ships and another 250 soldiers, giving the English overwhelming military advantage. In September 1611, Gates and Dale headed upriver with 300 hand-picked soldiers to close the Powhatan's back door. The Powhatans fought back hard while the armored English fortified positions far upstream, but to no real avail. The Paramount Chief Powhatan, Opakankanaw, and their remaining people retreated into the heart of the Pamunkeys near the present-day West Point, Virginia, at the confluence of the Pamunkey and York Rivers. The Pamunkey remained loyal to Powhatan and had an intact and formidable fighting force. By the end of 1611, after two years of gruesome war, the English were now in control of the James, were fundamentally safe from new offensive operations by the Indians, and saw no percentage in pursuing Wahoon Sunnacock to the last. So began a de facto ceasefire that would last until the resolution of the war in 1614. One of the reasons for the pause was that word of the war was getting back to England. Virginia was losing its cachet as a destination. There's a shock. And the Virginia Company needed peace to raise more money and recruit more settlers. The English began to build farms along the fertile lands of the James, and the Powhatans, hunkered down to the north, were in no position to stop them. John Rolfe would experiment with tobacco seeds from the West Indies and find that he could grow and, more importantly, cure the leaves of that magical plant in quantity. He would break the Spanish monopoly in the tobacco business, and in a short time, the Virginia company would finally have a commercial product of sufficient value to attract new investors and settlers. The de facto peace would eventually become de jure. Captain Samuel Argyll, who had proved to be a subtle diplomat who carefully reinforced his personal credibility with the tribes of the region by always honoring his word, conceived and executed a plan to capture Pocahontas. That would restart communications with the paramount chief. He would not ransom his daughter, which irritated her no end. John Rolfe would fall in love with her, and their marriage in the spring of 1614 would settle the first Anglo-Powhatan War and usher in something of a golden age for the English in the region. We'll tackle that fascinating story next week. This is a great place to stop for now. Thank you again for listening. We hope you enjoy listening to the History of the Americans podcast as much as we enjoy making it, early in the morning as it may be, and that you tell all your friends, spread the word on your social propaganda website of choice, write us a nice review on Apple, and subscribe in your favorite podcast app. All of that helps spread the word. 
to stay up to date on announcements and other interesting stuff that doesn't make it into a podcast episode, you can follow me on Twitter and on the Facebook page for the podcast. This is a labor of love, and your support is very motivating. And of course, you can reach me with questions, corrections, eruptions of indignation, or pats on the back on the contact page for the website, thehistoryoftheamericans.com, or by email at thehistoryoftheamericans at gmail.com. Until next time. <laughs>